So we're in 2 Corinthians 5 this morning. Have you ever uttered this phrase? I, I, I just wish that there was more time in the day. Yeah, we, we've all felt that at some point, right? We've, we've all felt like, oh, if only there was just like a couple extra hours so I could get stuff done today. Uh, I, I go through pretty regularly a, a uh, time where I wish that the days were maybe like 26 hours long instead of 24 or maybe even 28 or, or an even 30. I mean, it'd, it'd be really nice. Maybe I would actually get some sleep. <laughs> That idea of of wanting more time in the day is is a relatively modern concept, if you think about it. Uh, Before the advent of modern lighting and technology like what we're benefiting from this morning, people focused their work and their attention on the hours of the day when they had sunlight. They would go out to work... uh, as soon as the sun rose, they would do everything that they could while the sun was up. And as the sun was setting, they would come home and not worry about their work anymore because there wasn't anything more that they could do. They didn't have the the ability to, to see well what they were working on uh, out, out there. Now, we can use this gift of, of modern technology and and uh, artificial light to extend those workable hours really as, as long as we want to. And that, in turn, may have contributed to the more modern concept of getting as much done in a day as you possibly can, being as productive as you can, working until the work is done rather than working until you simply can't work anymore. If you... Do a search on Google, you'll find pages and pages of productivity tips, uh, advice from other people on how to make the most of your time and not squander any bit of time during the day. And really, the, the people who are looking for these kind of productivity tips, trying to, to make the most of their time, I don't know if you're like this, I certainly can be at times, want, wanting to, to make the most of my time in this way. Really, these kinds of people are are trying to take control over their time. They want full control over every second, if possible, trying to make the most out of every minute of their lives. There's a problem with this, though. And that problem is the fact that time is an objective, fixed construct that continues to move forward whether you want it to or not. You may have a perfect plan for your day. You're going to do A, B, C, all the way down to to Z. You You have all this stuff planned and something jumps into your day that you didn't expect. And now you have to deal with this. And you didn't think you were, you would have to worry about this. Well, time doesn't stop during those interruptions. It's not like you, you have this free time to take care of this issue and then time will just start moving again. As soon, as soon as you're done with that and you can get back to your regularly scheduled productive day. That's not how time works. You cannot control time. It forces its metaphorical will upon you as it continues to move forward at the same rate every single day. 
Humanity has this insatiable desire to control everything about our lives that is really apparent in the way that we try to control our time, but really it's every aspect of our lives. And the the problem with this is that we're really bad at controlling our own lives. We can't perfectly predict how every day is going to go. We can't plan everything out and expect that every single day is going to go exactly as we imagined it would. It'd be foolish of us to think that that is the case. We cannot wrap our finite minds around every possible scenario. We can't know perfectly how every day is going to go. The best thing that we can do is realize that we do not have control and to relinquish that need for control and give our lives over to the one who does have control. God is the one who has control over our lives. And if he has that control, then he also has the authority to dictate what we do, when we do it, how we do it, why we do it. He has that authority. God set this world in motion. He determined the laws of nature, the laws of physics in such a way that he gave us a fixed amount of time in each day. And he has given each of us a fixed amount of time on earth. And he has shown us in his word how he expects his people to live. And knowing that we are fallen, sinful creatures, he has also provided the way for us to live as he has called us to live. The way that he has dictated in his word for us to live, he now offers the ability to do that in Christ. Our love for God is simply expressed in our faithful following of his lead. If we're in Christ, then he is the one at work in us for the sake of his gospel and for his glory. And that's what we'll see today in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, a little backstory before we get into chapter 5. 2 Corinthians is actually the fourth letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. Paul had a, had a really rocky up and down relationship with the Corinthian church. He helped found that church and establish it. He spent a year and a half in Corinth getting this church off the ground and making sure that it was running well before he continued on his missionary journeys. And he had good interaction with that church at the beginning, uh, sending letters to instruct them in Christian living. But then false teachers entered that church and turned that church against Paul. They're trying to discredit him and preach a different gospel. So Paul had to confront that and it really messed up his relationship with the Corinthians. And at the time that second Corinthians was written, this fourth letter to, to the church in Corinth, the church had, had realized what they had done, that they, they had allowed certain heinous sins to live in their church and they were following after uh, false gospels. And so they had repented to God and they were repenting to Paul. 
And so this letter is Paul rejoicing in kind of this restored relationship with the Corinthians. But Paul also knows that the argument isn't over. Even though the church at large was grieving their sin and repentant of it, there were still false teachers who were trying to discredit Paul and promote their own gospels. So Paul writes Second Corinthians to reestablish the truth of this gospel for the Corinthian believers and also to reestablish his authority as an apostle. And he does that by proving to the Corinthians that his ministry is founded on the gospel of Jesus Christ and it's bearing fruit. The Corinthians ought to have known that it was bearing fruit because they saw Paul's ministry for the first 18 months of that church's existence while he was there establishing it and and helping it take shape. So the Corinthian church was evidence. There were some of Paul's credentials that his ministry was the ministry of the gospel of Christ and that it, it was at work because of the work of Christ. He continues that line of thought from the, from the beginning of the book all the way through chapter 5, where he establishes that his ministry is actually God's ministry. That's what we're really going to focus on today in, in the second half of, of 2 Corinthians 5. Paul is not preaching his own message. He is preaching God's message. God is using Paul to reveal the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ through his ministry around the world. Here's a couple of passages before we get to 2 Corinthians 5 in, in, this, in this letter that, that show this, that highlight the reality of Paul's ministry. Uh, first is 2 Corinthians 3, verses 5 and 6. 2 Corinthians 3, verses 5 and 6, Paul writes, Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So he's showing that the only reason that he has a gospel worth listening to is because that sufficiency of the message, that sufficiency of the gospel comes from Christ and not from Paul. He picks this up again in chapter 4, a passage that, that Daniel read earlier. We're going to read, I want to read this again. This is Second Corinthians 4, starting in verse 5. I'll read all the way through verse 7. Paul writes, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Verse 7, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So Paul is proclaiming this message that Jesus Christ is Lord. And he is showing that the message is what has the power to save. It's not anything of Paul. He is a weak vessel. Jars of clay are easily broken. But the strength 
of the gospel comes in the message itself and its source being Jesus Christ. Paul builds in a crescendo through the, the beginning of this letter all the way up to the second half of 2 Corinthians 5 where we'll be spending our time this morning. And Paul describes here specifically the ministry that God is working in him and the ministry that he desires to see in all believers. So let's read our passage now in 2 Corinthians 5. Starting in verse 14, we'll read all the way to the end of the chapter. 2 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Paul is describing his ministry, or rather God's ministry within him. And in this description of his ministry, we see three core realities for the believer. So that's what we'll, that's, that's our, our outline for this morning, morning is these three core realities for a believer. The first is that we are controlled by Christ. We are controlled by Christ. We see that right away at the beginning of our passage, beginning of verse 14, that the love of Christ controls us. So let's look at that word control for a minute. The Greek word for control is, is, is sunike, and it has this idea of a forceful influence. There's a pressure that is pushing towards a specific action. There are a lot of modern translations that take this word and translate it as compels, which is true enough. Christ's love does compel us to live for him, but it doesn't give the full effect of this word, the fact that we are controlled and set along a specific path. One older, there, there's some older translations that use a word that we don't know, that, that we don't use very often anymore, and that's the word constrain. The person who's constrained is forced toward a specific outcome or a specific answer. 
So that's what's envisioned here when Paul says that it is Christ's love that controls us. We live out of a love for Christ because He is fueling us in that direction. His love is directing us that way. It directs us down this single path. It is the narrow path of selfless devotion. The narrow path of selfless devotion. This is the same narrow path that Jesus himself told his disciples about in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7 when he said to enter by the narrow gate. When he said that the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. The way to life is hard because it requires that we die to ourselves. That we give up living for ourselves and allow the love of Christ to control our lives and our actions. We take up the example of Jesus as, as, and His sacrificial love. The sacrificial love that we see in the rest of verses 14 and 15. This historical fact that Paul mentions that one has died for all, that Christ has died for all, and as a result of that, Paul says, all have died. What he means by that is that those who have trusted in Christ have died to self, to their former way of living. We are not bound by our sin anymore because Christ has paid the price for our sin. Paul says elsewhere in the New Testament that we are no longer slaves to sin. We are slaves to righteousness. We are free from the power of sin so that we are now able to serve the Lord faithfully because of the life that God has given us. If you are in Christ, your life is not your own anymore. You now give your life in service to the one who has given you life. We were dead in our sin before we accepted Christ as our Savior. There was nothing redeemable about us. We, we were living in sin. We only have life because God has given it to us in Christ. And so that life that He has given us, we now live out in response to His gift to us by serving Him with everything that we have in our lives. I talk about this a lot with our music ministry, with all the, all the musicians up here. We, we talk a lot about the fact that we have been given these gifts of being able to, to sing and play instruments, to make music. God has gifted us in that way. So our proper response is to give that gift back to God as an offering to Him, seeking to honor Him with our music and also seeking to edify you, the congregation, as we sing together each Sunday morning. That is our giving of the, the gift that God has given us. We give it back to God in that form of service. Let me read a couple of passages that all, that, that help to, to flesh out this idea that we have died to ourselves. Uh, you can just, if you're taking notes, you can just jot down the references and I'll just read these really quickly. First is Galatians 2.20. 
Galatians 2.20. This is probably a well-known passage to most of you. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. It's very stark words from Paul. It is no longer I who live. It is Christ who lives in me. He has died to Himself. He's given over to the service of God out of, his, out of love for God, who He is, and a love for others. The second passage that I want to read is Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. Philippians 2, 12 to 13. Paul writes to the church in Philippi, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my pre- as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For and, and this is this is the key part right here, this this verse, verse thirteen. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So he tells the Philippians to work out their salvation, knowing that it's not their work. They're not the ones who are working. It is God who is at work in them because of their faith in Christ. That Christ is working through them to draw them closer to himself, to make, to make the Philippians and all believers more faithful to what God has called us to in his word. He is the one who is working that in us. We, we, we sang about that just earlier today in All I Have is Christ when we sang the strength to follow your commands could never come from me. We can't obey Christ out of our own strength. Our sinful flesh would mangle it. We, we, would, we would ruin it in some way. It is only because Christ is at work in us that He gives us the ability to follow God's commands. He is the one working within us. Now again, Paul is talking about his own ministry in this passage, or rather the the ministry that God is working through him. But he sees this ministry, this controlling love of God, as a present reality for all believers. Let me read this uh, quote from a commentator named George Guthrie uh, when he's talking about these two verses, verses 14 and 15. He writes this, The love of Christ, as expressed in the gospel, has taken hold of Paul, puts limits on his actions, and moves him in specific directions, constraining his course of actions in the world calling him to a self-sacrificial love patterned by Christ himself. Paul has been boxed in and set on a particular course by the gospel and now lives only for him who died and was raised for him. In other words, he is a man under orders and cannot cavalierly set his own agendas in life and mission. This gospel constrains boxing out self-indulgent self-love. I love that, that idea that Paul was a man 
under orders. And that's the, the case for all of us who are in Christ. We are under orders from God. We know that in any branch of military, to disobey orders is a very serious offense. How much more serious of an offense is it to disobey the orders that are given by the Lord of all creation? Your own Creator to disobey what He has called you to and choose your own path. This is why the Bible is so quick to condemn those who claim the name of Christ, yet continue in deliberate, willful, habitual sin. These hypocrites that say that they are in Christ and yet go on sinning deliberately. There are many places in Scripture that, that condemn this. Hebrews 6 and all of 1 John are good examples of, of that, that sort of condemnation. But if Christ is truly in you, then that sort of habitual sin cannot sit comfortably in your life. Those two forces are vying for your control. Only one can have control over your life. It is either the Lord or it is your sin. Jesus even said this when he said, you cannot serve God and money. It's the same sort of thing. You cannot serve Christ and serve your own sin. They they combat each other. You can only serve one of the two. The love of Christ controlling us keeps us from such sinful habits and it directs us to faithful living in obedience to God's commands. This does not mean that we never sin again. This does not mean that we don't continue in the same patterns of sin that we have struggled with over the years. But there's a key word in there. It's the word struggle. We're struggling against our sin. We don't want to live comfortably in that sin. It makes us uncomfortable. We repent of those things to God. We seek His Word and and we seek His divine strength to move us past those sinful habits so that we can put them in the rearview mirror and be free from those sinful habits. We're working against those things. It is not something that we just allow willy-nilly within our lives. So this this is the first reality that we see, that, that we are controlled by Christ. The second core reality for a believer that we see here is in verses 16 and 17. It's the fact that we are caring about others. We're caring about others. And this makes sense right away, doesn't it? If, if our lives are not our own anymore and we're living out of love for Christ and He is the one who dictates how we live, we're no longer living for ourselves, then naturally we will be more proactive about caring for other people. Because we're not so focused on ourselves, we have more ability, more desire to care for others, for their spiritual well-being. 
And these two verses show us why that is the case. So Paul says, from now on, you know, because we have this new life in Christ, we regard no one according to the flesh. Basically, we do not judge people according to the way that they look or the way that they act. To adapt the phrase, we cannot simply judge a book by its cover. We have a new perspective in Christ, an eternal perspective. We do not simply see within the limitations of this present life, but we can understand from an eternal perspective that, you know, this, this person that I'm talking to is an eternal soul that, that needs a savior. Now, I, I can see a, a couple of young men walking through my neighborhood and they're wearing sharply pressed white dress shirts and a real nice name tag on the pocket of that dress shirt. And I can pretty easily deduce that those two young gentlemen are Mormons. I mean, tell me I'm wrong. If you see two two young guys walking around like that, you can pretty well assume that there, that there are a couple of Mormon missionaries walking around your your neighborhood. But if my analysis of those two young men doesn't go any farther than that, just like oh these guys are Mormons, okay, just just back off and move away, that then I'm simply judging them or regarding them according to the flesh. Because of this eternal perspective that Christ gives us as his followers, I can see those two men and not just see the fact that they're Mormon missionaries trying to, um, trying to evangelize people in my neighborhood, but they are souls in need of a Savior. In their case, they're souls in need of the Savior that they claim to be proclaiming, but they don't actually know. But that's a, that, that's a different topic. We don't have time to, to go into that. We no longer regard people just according to externals. So how do we regard them? We regard them according to their souls, their relationship to Christ, their eternal destiny. We care about them and desire that they know and experience the same new life that Christ has given us. And speaking of Christ, Paul mentions that we once regarded Christ according to the flesh in the same way that we used to regard other people according to the flesh, but we regard him as such no longer. Prior to our salvation, all that we really knew pertained to this life. Uh, we see in, in Scripture in Ecclesiastes that God has set eternity upon a man's heart so we can understand that there's something beyond us. But we can't wrap our finite minds around that, so we try to pigeonhole everything that we see through the lens of this this present life. That's all that we can really understand before salvation. If we knew anything about Jesus, probably what we knew would lead us to believe that he was a good teacher, maybe even some kind of prophet. And that's that's the same sort of description that the crowds gave to, of Jesus when he was alive and, and ministering on the earth. 
And it's the same sort of descriptions that those who have not trusted in Christ today use about Jesus. That, oh, he was, he was just some, some good teacher way back thousands of years ago. But that's not how we see him anymore. We understand that he is the Christ, the Son of God who paid the debt that our sin deserves so that we may have eternal life. And this is Paul's testimony about himself as well. He used to not regard Jesus according to anything other than the flesh. Paul was a zealous Pharisee who tried to destroy the early Christian church because he didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. His perspective changed that one day as he was on the road to Damascus looking to persecute more Christians in Damascus. And the Lord revealed himself to him. And Paul, who was then called Saul, was, was saved at that time. Let's turn quickly to Acts chapter 9. Keep your fingers in uh, 2 Corinthians 5. We're going to look at, at Acts chapter 9 and verse 20 and 21 for a second. So after his conversion on the road to Damascus, this is the, the, that's what's laid out in, in the beginning of chapter 9. After his conversion, Saul, Paul, at this point, he's still called Saul, spent time with the disciples in Damascus, learning more about Christ. But that same zeal that he had for persecuting Christians couldn't stay bottled up inside him any, any longer. That, that zeal had to, had to show itself in some way. But as we'll see at the, in verses 20 and 21 of Acts 9, we see that that zeal has shifted in its perspective. So this is Acts 9 verse 20. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues saying, He is the Son of God. Stop right there. Do you already see the change that has happened in Paul's life? He didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah before this experience. But now he is convinced that Jesus is the Son of God. So we already see this dramatic shift within Paul. Going on to verse 21. This is not just something that, that Paul noticed. This is something that, that everyone else around him noticed. Verse 21, And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name, the name of Jesus? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? The people in Damascus knew who Saul was and what he had come there to do. And they saw this stark change within him that is only possible because of the new life in Christ. This new perspective that Paul had is the same new perspective that we all have when we came to faith in Christ as well. When we realized that he is the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Those who have this eternal perspective, who have this life in Christ, 
are new creations. You can turn back to, to 2 Corinthians 5. I want to read verse 17 again. I know this is a familiar passage to us, but it's such a wonderful description of our status in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That which was already dead within us, our sinful nature, the way in which we once walked, is now completely done away with. It is gone. We have new life in Christ. We have been raised from death to life. This is a miraculous thing. That is why Paul uses the word behold in this verse. If you look at the Gospels and see any account of Jesus' miracles while he was on earth, a lot of them have this interjection at some point. Behold, this miraculous sign of something that, that happened. And that same sort of miraculous work takes place in each of our hearts at the moment that we trusted in Christ and were given new life in Him. This transformation is not readily seen in our physical body. We don't start glowing as soon as we trust in Christ. We don't have some like form of a halo showing up over our head. Not, no, none of us do. Matthew Henry puts it this way when he says, Though the same as a man, meaning same in, in appearance, the believer is changed in his character and his conduct. That is how we see this change that happens within us. It is in the things that we say, the values that we have because of Christ, the way that we act. Those are the evidences of the, the life-giving work with, of Christ within us. And this is why it's important that we judge no one according to externals. We don't know who the Lord will choose to save, and we can't simply decide whether or not to share the gospel with someone because of how they look or how they act, thinking like, oh, that person I don't, I don't know that they would ever respond to the gospel. You'd be surprised. The, a lot of those people are the people that, that God works in their lives and, and they come to the realization that Jesus is the Son of God, that He is the Messiah. When we see Christ for who He truly is, and when His love controls our steps, then we can see everyone else for who they truly are. We care about others enough to proclaim the gospel to them so that they may have this same new life that we have in Christ. And that leads perfectly into our third core reality for the believer. So we saw that we are controlled by Christ. We care about others. And the third is that we are calling for reconciliation. Calling for reconciliation. Paul says in verses 18 through 21 that we have all been called to the ministry of reconciliation. 
The, the word reconciliation is used five times in this passage. In the span of three verses, it's used five times. And this is the core of the message that we are to proclaim, as Paul is saying here. That word reconciliation has a lot of interpersonal implications. It means the removal of hostility between two parties, whether it's two people or two groups of people or two nations. There's some sort of animosity or hostility or tension or anger, maybe even a fight between two parties. But that fighting, that hostility is done away with and there is now peace between them. Now before Paul used the word reconciliation here in Second Corinthians and in a couple other places in the New Testament, this word was never used in religious settings. At the time that Paul was writing, it was in the, the heyday of the, of the Greco-Roman Empire, and the Greeks had no concept of any relationship between humanity and deity. The same, same thing goes for, for the Romans. Any relationship or any interaction that may have happened between humanity and their, their deities just caused a whole mess of confusion and chaos within their pantheon of false gods. So there was no concept of a deep personal relationship between any one god and humanity. But we know from Scripture, even from the, the first pages of Scripture, that humanity has had a deep personal relationship with God from the beginning. In Genesis, we see that Adam and Eve walked with God in the Garden of Eden. They had this deep, personal, intimate relationship with God. That relationship was only destroyed because of the fall, because of Adam and Eve's sin. So from a human perspective, that relationship really can't be reconciled. There's nothing that we can do to reconcile ourselves to God, to make up for this broken relationship. And that is why God provided this way of reconciliation out of His own unconditional love. The relationship between God and man can be restored through the sacrifice of Christ. There's no other hope of reconciliation outside of this expression of God's steadfast, unconditional love. That's why Paul says in the beginning of verse 18 that all of this is from God. This new life that we have in Christ that directs our steps and gives us this ministry where we proclaim the gospel to others, this is only because of the work of God. It is by His power, it is through His mercy, it is in His love, and it is for His glory. God has accomplished this reconciliation work within us, and He now calls us to engage in the same work so that He can use us to reconcile others to Himself. We should briefly address here the, in the beginning of verse 19, 
Paul says that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. It would take too long to address this fully, be better for a Sunday school or something like that. But I want to make sure to say that Paul is not implying by saying this that the whole world will be saved. That is not, that is not what he's trying to say here. Christ's sacrifice was sufficient to cover the sins of the world, but only those who trust in Christ will receive that saving power. Paul's main goal in this passage has been to articulate his ministry, God's ministry through him. And so he's giving the scope of that ministry by expressing this. We are called to go to the entire world to proclaim this message of reconciliation. Not everyone will be saved, but we do know that every that, that there will be representatives from every tribe and tongue and nation in God's eternal kingdom because of the work of and the ministry of the church, God's ministry through his church. Paul has called us ambassadors for Christ, and that description ties back to verse 14, the fact that the love of Christ controls us. Ambassadors do not work for themselves. They have been sent by someone else, and they are called to be that person's representative. So if we are ambassadors for Christ, then that means that it is our job to represent Christ wherever we go. His love controls what we do and say so that we are faithful witnesses of Christ to the world around us, to those who have not trusted in Christ, so that we may be a representation of the gospel to those people. We are called to proclaim this message by the things that we say and the things that we do. That's why Paul tells us in, in, in the second half of verse 20, we implore you, really we urge you, we plead, we beg with you, be reconciled to God. That is how our message ought to be conveyed because of this eternal perspective within us that Christ, that Christ has given us. We strongly desire that everyone would know this same life that Christ has given us. So we implore people to be reconciled to God, to receive this new life in Christ. And Paul succinctly summarizes the message of the gospel in verse 21. We could, we could spend a month on this verse alone. It's, it's sad that we have to, um, that, that, that I'm gonna have to just skate through this and just give this as a, as a summary of the gospel message. But I want to read this. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the message that we have believed in that has given us life, that now controls everything that we do. We, we, are the, we, we have become the righteousness of God because of Christ's work on the cross. 
And this is the same message that we, that, that fuels care for others within our hearts. We cultivate this care for others and desire that they come to know Christ as well. It is this message that compels us to share that message with everyone that we come in contact so that they may be reconciled to Christ as well. So we've seen these three realities, these three aspects of our ministry as believers in Christ. So who controls you? Are these realities present in your life? Is it evident in your life that the love of Christ is dictating what you say and what you do? Is it cultivating this care for others? Is it cultivating a love for God and a love for others? We've spent, you know, we're going on six months now talking about the love of God. And we've seen over and over and over again how the love of God, particularly shown through the person of Christ, fuels our love for God and our love for others. That ought to be evident in our lives by the way that we consider others and our desire to share the message of the gospel with them. So I would encourage you to take stock of your own lives. Think through those areas where you're not allowing the Lord to control your actions. You're trying to wrestle back some control for yourself. Ask that the Lord would reveal those things to you. And as He does, repent of those things. Ask that the Lord would help you turn away from those sinful actions, those, the, the desire for control, so that the love of Christ would even more fully dictate the way that you live. Paul gives a couple of warnings to the Corinthian church in, in the two letters that we have of his in Scripture. In uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says that let every man who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. And, and then later on in 2 Corinthians in chapter 13, Paul writes this, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? This is a call for us for self-evaluation. We ask ourselves, who is in control of my life? Am I, am I relinquishing my control so that Christ can work in me? If we are in Christ, then He is at work within us for the sake of His gospel and for His glory. Let's, work, let, let's be faithful ambassadors for His sake. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we praise You for this life that You have given us, knowing that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And You have brought us to new life in You. 
Father, I thank you for the way that you have worked within us, that we no longer live for ourselves. We live for your glory. Father, we do not do that perfectly. We, we ask that you would reveal to us the ways that, that we still seek control over our lives. Pray that you would give us the ability to relinquish that control. That, that you would work in us. That we would willingly give up our need for control. So that you may be at work within us in every aspect of our lives. So that we are faithful ambassadors for you. Pray that that would be true of all of us in this church. That we would live not for ourselves, but for your glory. That that would dictate the way that we act toward one another, encouraging one another in the word, seeking to build each other up to greater maturity in Christ-likeness. And that that would also be evident in the way that we interact with those around us in our community. That we would proclaim the gospel to them because we understand that eternity is at stake for each person. Father, I pray that you would work within this church to, to grow us as deeper, stronger believers and that you would bring more people into our congregation as a result of your work in, in, in our evangelism. That people would come to know Christ and they would grow deeper in their walk with you, that they would become more spiritually mature and more like Christ so that they will then also continue that same work and go and proclaim the same message to those around them. Pray that, that we would see a level of revival that comes out of this church because we are faithfully submitting to your will and letting your love work through us. Make us faithful ambassadors of your word, O oh Lord. We pray all these things in your son's precious name. Amen. Would you please...